Welcome to Reframe Your Life, a podcast for women who are on a spiritual journey and want to reclaim a vibrant and authentic faith. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Sandy Reynolds. Hi, welcome to episode 83 of Reframe Your Life. And I'm a little freaked out today. This is the first interview that I actually recorded without Joanne. If you've been listening to Reframe Your Life, you know that Joanne and I have been recording this podcast for over two years together, over 80 episodes, and I have thoroughly enjoyed being a co-host. Branching out to a solo host has been a bit of a stretch for me, and to be honest, I think I'm still finding my way, and it will probably take me I'm guessing about five to ten episodes to really sort of find my own voice. I know when Joanne and I first started Reframe Your Life, we had that same growth and we started it and then after about five episodes, we really started to hit our stride. So I'm hoping that you'll stick around for the next five episodes while I get there. My guest today is Meredith Gould. She is a PhD, a sociologist, a longtime spiritual seeker. She's a mixed media mosaic artist and award-winning author of 11 published books. Meredith has been consulting since 1989. She provides digital communications services plus crisis communications to faith-based organizations as well as the healthcare industry. Meredith also claims bragging rights to establishing hashtag CHSOCM as the universally recognized hashtag for church and social media. She's been named a Platinum Fellow of the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network and has successfully navigated six career changes. We talked about all kinds of things in this interview, and clearly she's done a lot of reframing in her life. We start off exploring her spiritual journey and how that's evolved over her lifetime. And then we talk about the book that led me to Meredith, which is Desperately Seeking Spirituality. And in that book, Meredith talks about spiritual practices, but not the ones that we usually think of like prayer or walking a labyrinth or meditation or any of those disciplines that normally are associated with spirituality. Instead, Meredith talks about spiritual practices of being, willingness, curiosity, empathy, generosity, and delight. And I'm hoping that this interview will help you reframe your spiritual practices. Meredith Gould, welcome to Reframe Your Life. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Really mean it. Not even, not even, <laughs> not even doing that pro forma. I really mean it. It's my pleasure. <laughs> well, I'm excited to have you as my first guest in my uh, solo Reframe Your Life 2.0, I'm calling it. I looked over your bio, and I I actually found you on Twitter through a trail with Carol Howard Merritt. And I started reading some of your tweets, and I thought, I have to connect with you. So, (laughs) And then when I read your bio, I thought, you are like the perfect bridge between what we were doing, Joanne and I, and the direction I'm taking it. And she went into healthcare, so there you <laughs> yeah. go. So you are my bridge episode. Oh, great, great. Well, I love healthcare. In fact, I've written for Big Pharma in the United States, which is considered the evil empire, and I go around saying, really, it's not. Um, there are some very good people within Big Pharma doing good things. I've also worked in the complementary medicine field, writing, editing, uh, creating website content, for uh, you know, acupuncturists and naturopaths and all that, and then very long career in healthcare communications. Kind of the crowning point of that was uh, working as a consultant with the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota um, on uh, social media and helping practitioners get savvy about how to use how and when to use social media. I love the diversity of your work. When I headed to your website, I expected to find it really focused in on the area that I saw you tweeting about. And then I was 
pleasantly surprised to find not only were you talking about spirituality, but you also were in the communication work and also have a very artistic side of you. So I love that. I think that uh, that's going to add something to our conversation today. Uh, my mother, and truly there's just not enough therapy in the world to, to <laughs> heal this, but um, my mother used to call me a dilettante and it did take me many years of therapy and time in 12-step recovery and time with spiritual practices and just life on the planet to realize, no, I'm not a dilettante. I'm just multifaceted by many things and multi-talented and have many gifts that I need to embrace as gifts. And that's fine. That's fine. Um, I was trying to count this up the other day for someone. I was talking to a, a young, a younger woman and a lot of my friends are, probably 25, sometimes 30 years younger than I am or more because uh, I work so much in digital social media. Mm. It's very it's very democratic and very agnostic. Most people don't know how old I am until I either tell them or they kind of figure it out because I play the age card, which I do very sparingly. But... Um, so as a result, my friends are, are significantly younger than I am, and we have, I would call, true peer-to-peer -peer friend relationships that are, that are anchored in uh, shared concerns about spiritual life and shared concerns about communications and whatever else we're talking about. So uh, recently I was talking to a younger woman who was bemoaning the fact that she didn't quite, it wasn't. It was kind of like, well, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up because I've already done a couple of things. And I, that sat me down real hard and I actually did a count. And I went back to her and I said, um, I would say I've been through five to six complete, distinct careers in my life. And, and distinct isn't even accurate because when I look back over them, they all overlapped they the seeds of one seeds for the next one were planted in the in the one I was in and you mentioned the artwork you know uh, going back uh, going forward to the past actually and restoring my identity as a working artist is is the latest iteration and it's not new because I realized when I stopped and thought about it, I had my last paying job as a working artist when I was 23. Wow. Yeah. And so that took me, you know, probably 40 years of a lot of wandering um, and good wandering. You know, I don't regret any of it. Well, that might be a lie. I don't, I don't regret most of it. <laughs> <laughs> to give me the resources and, uh, you know, psycho-spiritual resources that I have to say, okay, now it's time to work as an artist again for a while. So it's, it's, you know, it's all of a piece. And I think we just don't realize that until we, I could say for myself, I, and from what I've observed, speaking as a sociologist, I, I, I think uh, women in particular don't particularly, don't, seem to get that until they're in their 50s mm -hmm. and I can tell you the 60s are a revelation and I cannot wait to get into my 70s. I like that you said that I think that we just really become more of who we always were as we we age and maybe in a healthier way as well. One of my questions I wanted to ask you is about your spiritual formation as a child and in your primary family growing up and I just wondered what the connection was, your spiritual journey. So you talked a little bit there about your your um, vocational journey, but what's your spiritual journey been like? <laughs> How many days do we have for? Oh, <laughs> God, my spiritual journey. Well, I was raised. Um, I was raised in the fifties and sixties in uh, Reformed Judaism, um, and. Um, my, I come from, in my family of origin, I come from a long history of, on my father's side, a long line of Jewish atheists or agnostics. 
Um, so my great-great-grandfather was a rabbi. They all were escaping the pogroms in, in Russia and came to the United States. Um, by the time my father was born, um, he was not raised religiously. Uh, his other brothers were, his three other brothers were. My joke is my father when he, the only time he was in a synagogue was when my mother dragged him down the aisle. And then later it was a forced, forced march to synagogue by my mother. Um, my, on my mother's side, uh, very, very long term in the United States, like already three or four generations in the United States. I'm beginning sus to suspect one part of that family uh, came over very early and was when the expulsion from Spain happened. Um, but uh, so there's a long history there of uh, Orthodox Judaism and then moving into the reform movement. So, uh, you know, by the time I was cognitive enough to know my grandparents, they were extraordinarily active in uh, Jewish philanthropy. And my parents were extraordinarily active in social justice and civil rights, which is pretty normative for Reformed Jews in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so I grew up in that environment. It was a mixed bag because we were not uh, extremely religious or observant, but that said, we did uh, light candles on Friday night and we did go to synagogue. I was active in Jewish Federation of Temple Youth and all that sort of thing. I grew up in a town that uh, where anti-Semitism was alive and well. Remember, this is the 60s. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty virulent in some ways. And we lived on the wrong side of town, which meant we did not live on the Jewish side of town. So I, I had a, a great view of a lot of that stuff. Um, my family itself... I, I know I'm taking a long time with it, but it's it's actually it's I've just been thinking about this a lot. I had a I had a health uh, crisis when I was eight years old, seven or eight years old, and as a result of that, my mother went to the local rabbi, and as a result of that, my mother got into really got into being Jewish hmm. to the point where. <laughs> I mean, I grew up with a Sonatina Chumash volumes. My mother then went on to be a Judaica editor for one of the leading Judaica uh, public publishers in the United States and so forth and so on. And that was just the air I breathed. I did not want to be confirmed because and I went to my rabbi and I said, I, I don't. I, no, I don't want to. And he said, well, your grandparents, you know, donated the eternal light. So we did that. I was not bar mitzvah. My brother was bar mitzvah. Um, I always thought it was because my parents either didn't believe in it or didn't want to spend the money. My mother alleges that I just didn't want to learn Hebrew. It all sounds right to me. I think we're all right on the interpretation, <laughs> which is also very Jewish, you know. Right. Everybody has an interpretation. Um, and I deeply regret not knowing Hebrew now. So so all that's going on late 60s. I discover uh, Hindu stuff and yoga stuff early on, so I plunge into that. Um, the Jesus... Um, Kind of the Jesus revival thing was going on around that too. So, you know, Godspell was out, Jesus Christ Superstar was on the horizon. So I kind of kind of looked over at that, but I was very clear it was a Jew. By the time I went to college or graduate school, I was not doing anything spiritual. It was, you know, like nothing. Um, uh, and if you had said to me, what's your spiritual life like, I would have looked at you like, what on earth are you talking about? You know, I was really into the life of the mind. I was an intellectual. I was going to graduate school in sociology. I was taking courses on the sociology of sociology. People were using big words I didn't even understand. I drank, so I kind of faked my way through it. <laughs> you know, this is crazy times. Um, and that went on until I ended up working you know, as a college professor, still no spiritual life. Um, how could there be, you know? Um, and then worked in a 
for state government in the in New Jersey, and then uh, ended up in an ad agency where the owner was a charismatic Catholic, and everybody had Bibles on their desks, and people said to me, oh, you'll last, last about ooh, maybe two hours there, and I actually ended up staying there for about two years, maybe two and a half years, and there I was very heavily evangelized by a former Catholic who went the non-denominational evangelical route. And um, so that's, after we went through the dance of her showing up and waving tracks at me and me saying, get away from me, um, that had an impact. Meanwhile, I got involved, heavily involved with yoga as a physical practice, Hatha yoga. And then later started to discover the nuances of yoga as a spiritual spiritual practice like karma yoga, the yoga of service and work, and um, nada yoga, the yoga of sound, and, and became very smitten with studying all different forms of yoga beyond um, hatha yoga. Um, and into that... Uh, happened a, a, another kind of a, a turning point um, and my friend that was a, a personal crisis and into that, uh, that, I don't even know what to call it, I guess, abyss jumped my evangelical friend and uh, saved me for Jesus, mm. um, which seemed like a, it, it seemed like a great idea to, at the time and I can say it was a great idea at the time. It was exactly perfect for the time. Um, and so I started what I now call my Christian era, which lasted about 24 years. Wow, that's significant. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking not just the spiritual stuff, but studying Christian theology um, getting very active in church work. I was a pastoral associate um, at a Catholic church for a while in communications for the past, I would say, decade or so. I've been a communications consultant for churches across, you know, talk about bridges, across denominations. And, uh, you know, so that's been going on for years. My, my spouse is an Episcopal priest, which is hilarious um and it's it just so that was it and then and then what happened was the united states has had one of the most stunning and grotesque political situations it has had uh, i can't say in my lifetime because i actually do remember the mccarthy era mm -hmm. and i do remember nixon and i never thought we'd be here again and yeah. here we are so that was my wake-up call. Um, after the election, um, I realized that I was raised by my mother to know that in terms of my life, it was never a matter of if the Holocaust would happen again. It was always a matter of when. Mm. And I felt this acute sense of, I've been living my whole life for this moment, and I'm scared, but I have to figure out, what am I going to do? Wow. What should I do? And part of that, in fact, my spouse said, well, I'm in the Anglican Communion. I could get a job in Canada. And I wavered for a moment because I'm very, I used to take my childhood vacations, actually, in, um, on the uh, Canadian side of uh, the St. Lawrence in, in Ivy Lee. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So many, many years of doing that, so great fondness for Canada, but I said, no, this is my home, you know, shoot me in the streets, you know, who knows if I actually believe that, but, you know, this is my country, I'm not leaving. Um, and that was uh, just, a, just a significant moment of, of change, of change, of me saying, what have I been doing? Um, how does it all make sense? Who am I called to be? Who am I really called to be? Where am I now? And um, that led to me understanding, and I did write a medium piece in which I talk about, 
you know, uh, less Jewish and more Jew to the point where I had other Jews on Twitter, you know, go to the back channel and say, what, what are you anyway? I thought you were Christian. Well, sure, because I had this whole Christian identity. So then I had to go, it's like coming out gay, which is the, of course, the other thing I did in the, you know, the 70s, everybody, you know, New York City was zoned for lesbians. So, of course, you know, what can I say? So, um, so I, I have a lot of experience with coming out processes, <laughs> but nothing like this. I'll tell you, it's easier to tell my parents that I was involved with women than it was to tell my friends I was, I was like, guess what? I, Christian, yeah, baptized, but yeah, Jew <laughs> type of thing. What to do with that? So that became a whole process, um, you know. And, and just for the record, I'm I'm now back in a heterosexual relationship. I'm just like, oh God, I can't even keep up with myself, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so that that really called me very deep into a process of. Who am I? Um, and more importantly, who am I called to be? Which is, you know, thank God in some ways, and I mean that quite literally, I'd already written Desperately Seeking Spirituality, and that book, writing that book, was like a spiritual practice. So I had already been wrestling for, what, two, three years with the whole issue of being versus doing. Um, just in time... You know, um, mm. Beshirt, there's that Beshirt thing, or the grace of God, however you want to articulate it. But just a time for me to say, okay, um, am I, how am I being? And how does that connect with my doing? And how is my doing undermined my being? Um, and I get to, got to tell you, doing that work in the sixth decade of life mm -hmm. is real different than doing it in my 30s or my 40s or even my 50s. So I will say that that's a good thing yeah. on a good day when I'm not sobbing. <laughs> Aging and spirituality with you because I uh, read Desperately Seeking Spirituality and you touch on that a little bit about, um, I can't remember the words you use. There's a, a, a name for it, like Jero. Uh, yeah, Jero uh, Transcendence. Yes, that's the word. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I agree. I think that we undertake a another level of spiritual exploration as we age, but you're the sociologist, so I wanted to <laughs> get your input on that and what you what you understand around women aging and spirituality. Right. Well, it's interesting. It's it's sociological. It's also very anthropological in the sense that in all known cultures, there seems to be what we find. I don't know that it's a cultural. Having said in all known cultures, I don't know that it's a cultural universal, but certainly visible in in the Eastern traditions in those cultures like uh, East India, Africa, and all around there, or let's say almost every place but the U.S. and Europe, um, uh, what we find is that women in the sixth and, you know, past the childbearing years move into a more deeply spiritual um, life. So you, we find that the the patterns of life, uh, the, pa the daily patterns for women, uh, the weekly patterns for women are less about child rearing and nurturing and more about um, self, I, I wouldn't call it self-care, I don't think they would call it self-care, but inquiry and looking in and looking, looking up, you know. Um, and, and it makes sense when you think about it because the, the work of child rearing and family maintenance is no longer there, uh, particularly. Mm -hmm. um, so that happens. The other thing that happens, and 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 this is this is kind of a, a sociological thing. It's also kind of a, a a biological physiological thing, is that as we get older, our bodies age. Duh. You know, we literally age. So stuff starts breaking down. So unless you have, unless you're blessed enough to have a 
chronic illness or an acute health crisis early on in your life that kind of brings you to your knees, literally and figuratively, to start asking spiritual questions or what we consider spiritual questions, it's around during the 50s, late 50s, certainly the 60s, we start to notice and I'm talking beyond the superficial stuff like, oh, my God, I have frown lines or wrinkles or, you know, like, mm-hmm. who cares? Um, well, some people do. I don't. Um, and I can actually, when I say that, I can hear some friends of mine saying, well, easy for you to say because you have great skin, <laughs> <laughs> which is true. It's genetic. But um, it's around in those times that things like osteoarthritis start showing up. Um some of the autoimmune disorders for women start showing up in the 40s and 50s. Um, women start getting diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And I think lupus starts showing up around the late 40s, 50s. I might have that wrong, but in the 40s. Uh, it all shows, it, all these things can show up younger. But, um, and things like osteopenia, like starting, uh, having doctors starting to recommend bone density scans and things like that, menopause, which is medically defined as not having, not menstruating for years, considered officially medical menopause. Mm-hmm. So people talk about menopausal, really what they mean is it perimenopausal. But um, all that stuff starts happening in the 50s and 60s, which throws up the great, the great screen on which we view mortality. So I think also at that point, we are invited, which is a nice way of saying forced, to look at our mortality um, and then to start asking these questions. What is my life meant? What happens after I die? What will be my legacy? And actually, after the book After Desperately Seeking Spirituality is a book called Transcending Generations, which has very much the same, a similar structure to desperately seeking spirituality, but is more oriented towards um, helping different generations communicate with one another by focusing on what is shared. And in that particular book, I say, you know, we share these uh, these core issues, identity, belonging, legacy, you know, those types of issues, uh, re- you know, regardless of age. That said, um, at certain uh, points, Chronological uh, points of chronological age when the body starts breaking down, then we're really asking things like, "Wow, what am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing?" You know, like in the last third of my life. So mm-hmm. I think that that raises the issues too. Yeah, and I think there's also a um, this goes back to one of your spiritual practices, a willingness to mm-hmm. question some of what we may have just accepted as our way of expressing our spirituality in our life. And so, you know, a lot of women I know in their 50s go through that, I'm not really sure I buy into that anymore kind of thinking. And I I, I don't know if it's because we just have the space to do it, or we also have enough confidence and belief in our own um, journey or discernment to and which sort thinking is that that you're saying you don't not sure you buy into which thinking is that oh uh, just whatever path you've been on you know like it, for me I you know have been through the uh, Christian um, evangelical world as well and I think it was really in my 50s I started thinking I'm not really sure about all of this anymore you know aspects of it yes but other things it's I'm just not buying into it anymore. And Mm -hmm. that kind of put me on a bit of a journey. But why don't we get into desperately seeking spirituality? Because I think that's sort of the thread that's pulling through all of this anyway. Yeah, I'm not sure that book has found its audience yet. And I think part of it is because it's not a fast read. I've had people say to me, um, I I started reading the book and I thought I could zip through it and then I realized I can't and I need to do the exercises and I think uh, and I want to do the exercises and I think when people um, encounter those types of books they tend to 
put them down and then not pick them up or not pick them up to begin with. My hope is that people would use the book as a dipping book and just keep it around and use it, dip in, in and out of it. I mean, that's how I use the artist's way, actually. I mm-hmm. I did that in 1995, I think, in 1996. And I think every five years I go back into that book and see what's changed. You know, but yeah, the desperately seeking spirituality. So I, I it's an evergreen book, as we say in the business. It's you know, it's not time um, time bound. So I'm hoping um, people find it. Uh, I uh, <laughs> actually went back and reread part of it and couldn't believe I wrote it. I'm like, who wrote this thing? I mean, so I started doing the exercises. I mean. In a good way, you felt like yeah. Oh, okay, because sometimes you can go back and go, "What was I thinking?" But you, it yeah, I was... have other books. But I have other books. I do that, but no. <laughs> um, I, I'm very fortunate. In very few of my books, I it, there are two books where I'm like, "Oh God," um, but the rest, I'm 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 good with. I I can stand by them. I can stand by them with integrity. Uh, desperately, and then I have this ongoing experience. Well, I'll read it, and like I know I worked on it because I've got the scars, you know, and then I go back and read it after it's published. Sometimes I don't bother looking at it again for a year or two. I mean, I'm like, oh, the cover's great, but I don't crack it open. I'm like, ew, I'm so sick of this thing. And then I go back a couple of years later, I'm like, wow, wow, I'm a, I'm a pretty good writer, <laughs> you know, with no modesty whatsoever. And then I think, how did I come up with that? And then you sound like that still small voice. It's like, hello, you did not come up with that. You are a channel <laughs> type of thing. Don't get too cocky. So, yeah, that that book. So, yeah, I recently, especially with what's going on in my life now, I went back and looked at it and I thought, oh, you know what? My primary practice right now actually have the willingness handled. Um I my primary practice is curiosity because I'm so stunned by what's going on these days all around me that the you know, one of the things that's keeping me alive is just to be able to look at and say, oh, what's up with that? And what am I supposed to be learning? And you know, where's where's the light in this darkness? Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I want to know. So curiosity has just been my my life raft right now. Oh, I I think we should go through all of these practices. But with the title "Desperately Seeking Spirituality," <laughs> what was that about? Like, what, what was that about? That, yeah. I love that title. Oh, thanks. I and it, thank you for saying that because I really I'm terrible at titling books. I don't think I've, this is probably the only book of of mine that I've actually titled. I usually come up with a title that's really horrendous, and the publisher says, "No, we won't be going with that," <laughs> which is bizarre because I'm a pretty good copywriter and I know how to write headlines, but book titles not so much. Um, what what that book was about was me, you know, trudging along this you know, road to happy destiny, as they say in the program and in 12 step recovery and, and then doing all these spiritual practices for years, I mean, decades, and also talking to people about, you know, you've heard of, you know, if you've heard of cross training for athletics, think about cross training for spiritual practices that, you know, if, if you're tired of, you know, for Roman Catholics, I'd say if you're tired of praying the rosary, then go do something else, you know, go sit in adoration. If adoration puts you to sleep, go pray the You know, mix it up. Don't get stuck in the same thing all the time. And then I kind of made the transition from that to saying, huh, I think what's really snagging a lot of these people at some point in their spiritual life is they think they have to do this stuff, that that's, that's the key, those are the keys to the kingdom of God, you know, just do stuff. Um, and that if you do enough stuff, then you become spiritual. So I said, well, what would happen if we just turn that all around? Because I think that's what I, I believe that's what I ended up doing in my life. I just flipped it around. I said, okay, what if I be what I want to be? And it's, you know, it's it's actually kind of a venerable practice in cognitive psychology, you know, living into, acting as if um, what, 
you know, being what I want to be um, and practicing that until it becomes part of my perspective, part of my personality. So uh, instead of, well, I'll serve at a, I'll serve at a food bank and um, blah, 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 and that'll teach me some empathy. <laughs> that'll learn me some empathy. What if I just practice, you know, ask the questions about how to become, well, let's start with sympathy, you know, actually understanding what somebody else is feeling, let alone feeling what somebody else is feeling. Same thing with, uh, you know, willingness, you know, okay, not willing, well, be willing to become, you know, how about if I practice being willing to become willing, you know, when and just kind of titrate it into my system. You see, there's your healthcare language, but you know, titrate it into my system until it becomes a way of being in the world, and that's my practice. And then, if I want to um, add in the practices of doing, and you know, I have a whole list of them in the book, which is you know, walking a labyrinth. I still walk labyrinths. I love the labyrinth. Well, my my mosaics are labyrinths. You know, mm -hmm. I want to walk a labyrinth if I want to go sing. If I want to do uh, hatha yoga if I want to uh, whatever I want to do in the context of, of church or synagogue then I can go you know more formal institutionalized religion then I can go do it but I can do it with the with the understanding or the felt sense that um, my spiritual life is not contingent and my spiritual awareness is not contingent on me doing that stuff does that make sense? Yes, it totally does. Okay. I, I just went through these, you know, I'm just going to name them. Their willingness, curiosity, empathy, generosity, and delight are the spiritual practices of being that you talk about in this book. And I found it enormously helpful for where I am. And Good. also, that book is deceptive in that when I first downloaded, I was like, oh, I'll get through this in a night or two <laughs> nights, no problem. Be all ready for the interview. And then, boom, it goes very deep. Your, your writing is very efficient. You know, it's, there's not, it's not a huge book, but it may as well be 500 pages long because there's so much in it. I think that, you know, for me, I just have been sitting and thinking about them and how sometimes the actual uh, spiritual practices that were part of my life actually got in the way of me being and embodying some of these qualities that are um, far more transformative spiritually. Which would you say is the one that uh, you realize like, oh, this really is in the way I need to okay. take a break? generosity for me is a big one because um when you had you had in there the lay the sorry i don't have it in front of me but you had the nine levels mm -hmm. of generosity and how we, oh Maimonides um yes steps of sadaka yeah yes of giving yeah yes of giving so how you can go deeper and deeper and then i realized that i have this um message around if somebody wants something they can ask for it, and I'm more than happy to give it. But if they don't ask for it, I'm not playing that game of trying to figure out what they need or want. Uh -huh. So I just saw that actually in that list about, you know, being generous as offering um, when you know somebody needs something. So it could be something as simple as someone saying, oh, I need to go pick up something, you know, a car tomorrow. It's happened to me this week. So, and I just didn't really trigger that, oh, I could offer to drive that person to pick yeah. up the car. Oh, it didn't even like trigger to me. It didn't occur to you. Yeah, no. Yeah. And then later got a text message saying, would you mind driving me? And then I thought, why do I not respond to those obvious clues that people give about their needs? Right. Which is why in the book I say, Choose one and really practice it. Yes. Get it grooved into a habit of being. Um, yeah. It, it, and it doesn't have to be 
you know, it can just be for a brief period of time. Like it can be a week. It can be, okay, this week I'm focusing on generosity. The other practice I've been focusing on, um, I started focusing on it a while ago and it did help me move more toward my artwork was delight. Mm-hmm. And somebody who was reviewing the book, I, I think either somebody who wrote a blurb for it or something else, that wrote me a, a personal note saying, I think it's really interesting that you chose the word delight and not joy. Mm-hmm. It has more impact when you say delight. And I said, thank you for noticing because I do choose my words very specifically. Also, I want to note that I ordered those chapters, those practices in a particular way as well, because one, each practice um, provides a, a foundation for the next. So you can't get to curiosity unless you've really done the willingness work. Mm-hmm. You can't get to empathy unless you are curious to say, wow, what's going on over there with that person? And you can't get to generosity unless you develop a sense of, of uh, understanding or something else and you can't be delighted unless you can hold the world and everyone in it and everything in it um, in a place of of wonder and delight so um, the core practice if I had to choose a core practice for for being it would be willingness it all starts there mm-hmm. no willingness no no nothing I love that. So now as you're saying that, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I need to just like forget about generosity and back up to empathy because maybe that's what the, the, uh, maybe that's where I need to really focus and spend a little time. So I'm I'm actually going to go back after this and, and look at that a bit more deeply. But like I said, that book, you could spend a lot of time and I will. Uh, I just thought it would be you know, I'd get through it for the interview. And then I had so many highlights in it. I thought, (laughs) okay. Uh, So another thing I'm going to say that I love about this book is you have the best footnotes. And yes, thank you. Right? That's my my superpower. (laughs) It totally is. And when you read it on Kindle, and you click on the, you know, the footnote, and it pops up, it's like this little aha, gotcha, kind of thing that happens and I I really appreciated those footnotes because oh, they're kind of like the oh you thought you got it here gotcha here's a little something more on that for you to think about that's funny I had once had a friend of mine said you know what at this point I don't even bother reading your books I just read the footnotes <laughs> <laughs> that's where I put all the because a, a lot of my uh, I would say my publishers, yeah, because most of my publishers don't like a lot. I don't write scholarly stuff. I have scholarly training. I make, but I'm not, I don't, I did all that when I was in academia. Um, You know, there's a reason why I'm not in academia. I don't want to write scholarly stuff anymore. Um, And don't with a vengeance. So, but the scholar in me, I'm always doing the, the background research and I'm and like I'm an endless font of useless trivial knowledge. So and I'm also by nature very curious and of course I'm raised Jewish so everything is like a debate, right? Yeah, right. so how did you come up with that? So all that stuff goes into my footnotes because my publishers when I'm writing for a trade audience they don't want a lot of citations in the body of the book. In fact, some of them don't want them at all. So I said, well, how about if I put it in the footnotes? footnotes um, or end notes actually so they're all at the end and they can be read separately I've discovered I didn't uh, set out to make it that way but it turns out they can be read separately and then the person can flip back and say what you talking about and then kind of get the background for why I'm making a point about certain type of research or, or point or everything I also use them to put my snarky little comments that really don't belong in the main text but I am immature enough to want to say it oh well there was one I just laughed because I I clicked on it on it and it said did you see what I did there yeah (laughs) I thought that's the best it's like yeah I did 
Okay, so let's talk about your work now. You've written a lot of books, and I noticed, I think it was on your Twitter page, it said, always working on the next one. So what Yeah, it was one what, of the works. I probably should take that down. Um, well, yeah, yet again, another interesting story. I actually was uh, in contract with one of my bucket list publishers, someone I always, a publisher I always wanted to be published by, whose work is just wonderful. Their books are exquisite. They've gone through a whole bunch of editorial changes over the years, and that's fine. Their books are consistently excellent. And I finally got a book contract with them to write a book about the spiritual um, the spiritual value of 12-step recovery slogans and to write it not just for people in 12-step recovery but for people because a lot of the slogans are just so much a part of common language um, that, you know, just to write about that and then what's available spiritually with that. And so got the contract, um, started writing the book. Um, like many of my books, I ended up like, oh, oh, okay, I'm writing about what I need to learn right now. So all of a sudden, what I thought was going to be a quick book, ha, 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 like there's <laughs> ever such a thing, um, became not a quick book. And then I got to the point where I realized I, I cannot, I cannot and I do not want to write this book right now and I also um, don't think this publisher is the right publisher anymore because I yeah. um, th ironically they had published an exquisite book by a friend of mine and I when I read her book uh, and I wrote the blurb for it I wrote to her and I said I have no idea why they have my book because I mean your book is so we had this, it's not a contest conversation that authors have with each other. But what I could see, the point I wanted to make with her, and then went to the publisher and talked to him about it, was that the voice I have, my voice, as you said, you know, my writing's very economical. It's very, um, it's brief but deep. Um, and it's edgy. I mean, that's why people like my books, is because, you know, I have my moments of poignancy, but I'm also always, you know, probably too willing to poke fun at something and uh, and that's my personality that's my speaking voice it's that's the way I am I've had people say to me uh, who've met me or talked to me say oh my god I read your books it's like sitting down and having coffee with you you sound just like your books sound like you I'm like wow how surprising uh probably that's the way it should be for most authors but who am I to judge you know right <laughs> um, there I am, judging again. But I, I could see that that publisher just was not going to, at the end of the day, or when the manuscript was going to be submitted, um, they were going to they were going to reject it. I knew it. And I just didn't want to go through any more work. And I had a great conversation with the publisher and told him what my concerns were. And part of it had to do with the end notes because I said, you know, I don't know if you've looked at a lot of my books, but... The end notes are like a separate book. That's where I put all this stuff. He says, yeah, well, we're not going to go for that. Mm. And he was, so I said, so, um, no, no harm, no foul. Let's, let's just, you know, end the contract, you know, and that's fine. And he was fine. And he wrote me, he, he was just gracious and he was wonderful and, and all that. So that book, um, I didn't have a Viking funeral for it. Um, which is one drama thing I've done in the past with manuscripts. <laughs> I'm never looking at this again. I'm burning it, you know, that type of thing. So I didn't have a Viking funeral for it. I do have printed out everything I've written so far. And, and actually, ironically or moronically, the book is 80% done. But I did have a ransomware attack on my computer four weeks ago. And all the electronic files have been erased. Oh, wow. <gasps> So, you know, one of my heavy-duty spiritual friends has been on this journey with me for a long time. My best friend said to me, God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. <laughs> I said, yeah, thank you for that slogan wisdom. But I, I don't know. Every once in a while, so I made this grand announcement in my most grand, grandiose way. That's it. I'm done. No more books. I, not, I need to do art now. I mean, I need to be an artist for a big chunk of time now. And um, 
everybody kind of laughed and said, yeah, yeah, you always say. My acupuncturist laughed at me. I'm on the table. She's sticking needles into my body, and she's laughing at the same time saying, yeah, you say this after every book. No more books. I said, yeah, but I mean it this time. <laughs> so who knows? I mean, I, I will confess that the other day when I started to pack to move, I packed up the manuscript. And I thought, yeah, you know what? I might kind of play with this. But I don't know who'd publish it. I mean, but I'm not even, ugh, I don't want to think about it. But yeah. So there is one in the, if there's one in the works, God knows. And I mean that quite literally. It's yet to be revealed. This one might be finished. I think there might be value in it. Um, first readers have told me that they found it very useful. So I'm a sucker for that. Tell, you, tell me you love my work and that you found it valuable. Then I'm like, okay, I'll keep writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully after this you will because oh, I found well, it very just, helpful. Yeah, we'll write for real write for appreciation and acknowledgement <laughs> <laughs> and loose change. Yeah, right. Not even. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned you're moving, yeah. and I think there's a bit of a story there. Maybe a bit of a reframing story there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I, I'm my my own best entertainment. So I'm moving from Baltimore, Maryland to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I posted somewhere on social media. This is me, you know, a, a really uh, bringing to life the stereotype aging woman artists moves to New Mexico. You know, it's, it's a great amusement by anybody who follows my nonsense wherever I post it. And it happens to be true. So I don't like, my story was, I don't like the Southwest. It is too gray. It is too brown. The mountains aren't green enough. Now, I lived in, in Western, you know, Central Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts for a while during the ashram years and very lush and green. I lived in New Jersey on and off for 30 years, very lush and green. Um, Baltimore, very green, but like a rainforest with the humidity, which I despise, but very green. So like now Southwest, I don't think so. Not happening. High desert. Don't make me, don't make me choke, you know, type of thing. Um, so no intention of doing that. I'm like, oh, Adobe? Ew, no. I want a Victoria. You know, just whole litany. In fact, I call it my litany of ain'ts. I ain't moving. I ain't doing that. I ain't, you know, it's in my, in my best emphatic nonsense self. Um, and I have to say, one of the the benefits of being on a spiritual journey for so long and doing the work I've done or doing the work I've been forced to do is that I'm better able to see my own nonsense faster and laugh at it, you know, to practice delight. You know, the practice of delight is what, what line of BS are you running on yourself now, Meredith? You know? <laughs> and they just go, Oh my God, look, I'm still doing that. That's hilarious. Um, so, and then stop it. Anyway, so um, so I go out to visit my spouse who has moved to Albuquerque, loves Albuquerque. Um, and I'm like, yeah, well, good for you. Um, glad you like it. Has a, has, a, has a gig out there for about a year or so. <clears throat> has an apartment. Um, nah, not really interested in visiting. Now you can come home if you want. You know, all that sort of thing. Then I go out and visit. Now, before that, I've made this huge speech. Another, you know, like I'm on a soapbox so high. I'm like my nose is bleeding. It's such a high, tall soapbox. And I'm saying, oh, and by the way, at this age and stage in my life, I'm not moving. I don't have another cross-country move in me. I really don't. I love my home. I have a community here. I have a network here. I, my kitchen is just the way I like it. Uh, since you've left, I've turned the dining room and the kitchen into a mosaic studio. Not moving. Really, not. But I'll come visit. It's your birthday. What the hell? You know? So generous. Um, yeah. Generosity of spirit there. And and then I all and the, I was like, Yeah, no, I understand it. I understand. It makes perfect sense. Plus you'll predecease me, so there's no way I'm gonna move to New Mexico and then be stuck there after you're dead. Yep, totally get it. All right, fine. Last pronouncement before we get on the plane. Yeah, and unless I fall in love with Albuquerque, 
separate from you, don't even, we're not even having this conversation. And we're not having it for a year. Fine. I fall in love with Albuquerque. Oh, wow. I, I am gobsmacked in love with Albuquerque. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. The climate, the climate, it's, it's hot, but it's dry, mm. which is great for my particular chronic stuff, illness, you know, fibromyalgia, great for me there. Um, the mountains are God. The mountains have always been like the presence of the divine for me. And Albuquerque is surrounded by mountain ranges. I mean, you really can't turn anywhere without seeing a mountain range in the distance. So it's, I had that felt sense of the divine is present at all times, you know, without me having to work too hard to know that, you know, just look at the horizon, you know, oh, there you are. Um, and then it's an arts community, a lot of public art, a lot of wall art, public, public installations of mosaics, I mean, just, and just an ethos of art. It remind it just, it was just, pervasive it was just like the ground of being is art and it's a foodie paradise and I'm like a super major food snob so I'm walking around wow. <laughs> so um, and there's a there's a spirituality at least I imagine yes. there is it seems to me like along maybe with maybe all of those things the art and the food and those things are a reflection of a spirituality that's at work you know, right. in there. And and in the land, yes, yes, it was it's stolen land, you know, white people stole the land, okay. But there's a real and there's a real Native American presence. Um mm -hmm. there's a real Hispanic presence and I discovered and I want to explore it more, there's a real presence of Jews who did flee from who were expelled from Spain and Portugal. So apparently Albuquerque has um, that community, um, the generations from that community, uh, and the conversos, the people who converted to uh, Christianity to escape being, you know, heaped on a pyre and burned during the Inquisition, and then came to the United States and somehow ended up there. I, you know, I don't know the whole backstory, but I'm interested in finding it out. So all that stuff is going on. You know, that's like in in the soil there. I mean, that's just underneath yeah. all of it. So I think you're right. I mean, it, it it's just pervasive. And I felt happy. Um, I've been feeling pretty happy for a chunk of time now. Um, which I always used to feel, and then I didn't for too long. And so, just to have that, um, to have that be really consistent, just, just that sense of happiness, um, and uh, and just wandering around. So, um, and so I bought a house. It's happening very quickly, and it's happening um, remarkably smoothly as these things go. Um, which I also uh, put great store in. Um, my again took me into my fifties, which shows how how long it takes me to learn lessons. But I think it really did take me into my fifties, possibly my early sixties, to realize that when things do not go smoothly and I keep shoving my will against it, not meant to be, and I should just stop it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I but that I'm willful. You know, I'm willful. So I'm like, no, just oh, let me try this. I'll make one more phone call, and that'll make it work. Um, and I hope that this experience is is the one that helps me get it at a core level, that here's a great example of moving in alignment with divine will, the universe, God, whatever you want to call that, Um you know, keep that in mind the next time you think you want to do something. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I'm I'm excited, and I think that's a great place to um, since you're moving. But people aren't going to be coming to your door anyway. 
how can they get in touch with you? <laughs> I am the easiest person to find on on uh, Google. Trust me. Uh, first of all, I'm not the Miss America runner-up Meredith Gould, and I'm not the gymnast Meredith Gould. But all you have to do is type in Meredith Gould social media, Meredith Gould right, author. I pop right up. I hope at some point Meredith Gould mosaics will start popping up. I have to work on that. Um, Life is um, unexpectedly wonderful, and you know you're talking about reframing your life. What I would say to your listeners is, you can either try and reframe it intentionally, or you can just put the intention out and be willing to observe how it's getting reframed, and embrace that. Doesn't really matter, but reframing does happen. I love it. Uh, with us or without us. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good thing. It is a good thing. You know, I would like to close with a blessing for you, if that's okay. Oh, it's okay. taken well, from uh, uh, John O'Donohue's Blessing for Work. And I just thought it would be appropriate, especially in this transition for you. So let me just do that and then um, I'll let you go. Thank you. May the light of your soul bless your work with love and warmth of heart. May you see in what you do the beauty of your soul. May the sacredness of your work bring light and renewal to those who work with you and to those who see and receive your work. Thanks for joining me today, Meredith. 